Ephesians 4 starts a new section in Paul's letter from way back in September to just last week where we reached the end of chapter 3. The emphasis of Paul's letter so far has been what, what God has done in Jesus Christ to establish the church. Paul ends chapter 3 in the same way he begins the discussion about the church in chapter 1, and that's with a joyous prayer. Last week, Pastor Tracy uh, showed us how bring, uh, Paul brings together all the major themes of Ephesians into that prayer. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. So chapters 1 through 3, we see, that we see what God has done by his grace to establish the church. And now in chapters 4 through 6, how God's grace keeps the church unified and growing. We're going to look at one of Paul's favorite images of the church, and that's the human body. Back in chapter 216, Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross for sins, he tore down the wall of hostility between us and God, and he put an end to all the conflicts between all people groups. And in the middle of history, a new humanity, a new man emerged, and that new man is called the church. So we might say that chapters 1 through 3 are the backbone of the church body. And in chapters 4 through 6, Paul explains how God's grace works in the rest of the body. So what are the marks of a healthy church body? During the pandemic, we've all had to make changes to our day-to-day lives, including how we do church. So it would be good to look at these four four healthy marks of the church body. Without these four, the church will be spiritually disoriented and confused. It will be divided, unable to focus on its work, and not growing up into what God intends it to be in the world. So these marks are ways to assess the church's healthy growth. So let's look at the first one. The first mark is, does the church hear its call? That's what Paul discusses in verses 1 through 3. Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The Christian life begins with the ears. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Paul writes in Romans. Just as creation started with the call of God's voice, so new life in Christ starts when a person hears the voice of Christ in the gospel. So first and foremost, this calling from God changes the person who hears it. When God issues his call, the person hear God, hears God's word and realizes that his, feet, that his feet are on a bad path. He comes to his senses, he turns around, and sees that this new way leads to Jesus Christ. He leaves behind the old paths and goes on the way that God calls him to. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus preaches this call, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When God's call goes out, it has an effect. Some of you right now are are calling out to your children, trying to get them to do something, and it's having no effect whatsoever. You have my sympathies. I know what that's like when you're at home. But you see, when Jesus sends out his call to follow him, when it lands on the ears of his children, they turn away from paths that lead them astray, and they respond in obedience, and by his grace, 
They follow him. But you know, every parent is first a child. And all of us need help remembering what we were taught. Paul urges the Ephesians from his prison cell to remember their calling. In a major city like Ephesus, there were many competing calls. Will they go with their friends and neighbors to the local temple to worship deities? When they felt that their prayers weren't being answered by Jesus, would they go back to practice magic to try to get an answer they hoped for? Would they chase after power, whatever the cost, to have greater social influence? And just like the Ephesians, we have similar competing calls in our lives, but we hear ours in a distinct American accent. We hear that the secret to a happy life is getting all our needs and wants met. And in a free, affluent society, why wouldn't we? It doesn't matter what aspects of life we talk about, relationships, emotions, finances, jobs, hobbies. We are told, listen, listen and give in to your deep desires. Listen, the reason you're not happy is because your desires are not front and center of your life. Well, here's the problem. When our life is about listening and giving in to our desires, we aren't able to become the kind of people that the world needs, or even the kind of people we want to be around. As you run across problems each day, do you think, you know, the root, the root of our problems in society is that people aren't focused on fulfilling their desires enough. At work, do you look around and say, the problem with morale is that no one puts themselves uh, first around here. In relationships, when there's a conflict, would you find that they resolved if you just simply said, let's just agree. The solution to our problems is very simple. I just have to keep getting my way. Or when you scroll through the news or look at social media, do you agree with the Apostle Paul? that we need more humility, the ability to scale back our desires to make room for others all around us, especially those we disagree with. We need gentleness with patience, the ability to put in a kind and compassionate word when others speak harshly and act harshly. Do you ever take a step back and say, you know, we are really experts at blocking each other, canceling each other out, tearing down each other. More than ever, we need to learn how to bear with one another in love. Enough of this, you hit us and we hit you back harder. The cycle of hurt, it has to stop. If deep down, we buy into this idea that the source of unhappiness is rooted in not getting all that we want, not just in material things, but even in our relationships, then our wants make no room for the kinds of things we say that we need more of in our families, in our church, and in our society. If we don't examine our wants, then there is no open path to what we most need as creatures made in God's image. But if our ears have heard God's call correctly and we keep close company with Jesus Christ, then we will receive better things than getting all our wants 
we will share in the very things that fill the heart of Jesus Christ. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. Paul's point here is this. If the Ephesians have responded to the gospel of grace, these are what we should be working on. These virtues make room for others. They draw people closer together because each of them start not with our own preferences, but with others. You might be thinking, if I live in this way that Paul talks about, won't I miss out on my life, my dreams, my goals? One of the greatest delights of the Christian life is seeing time and time again that living with Jesus and him forming his character in us is a greater fulfillment than us getting all the desires fulfilled. It's not that our desires or goals are necessarily bad. It's that mysteriously, as our entire lives are enveloped by Jesus Christ, we find that his will for the universe is far more than we can even dream of for ourselves. We can trust him to order our lives however he wants to, and we will miss out on nothing. But it will cost us Paul himself is imprisoned as he writes this letter. But every cost undertaken for Christ as believers, as a church body, is rewarded by being drawn closer to him and being made more like him. Have you heard God's call to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What areas of your life do you need to bring to Jesus that you have kept from his call? God is urging each of us to respond in obedience to the call he has issued. Well, Paul goes on with these healthy marks. After, after the church body hears God's call, it must use its mouth to speak. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he told his disciples, Go into all nations and teach them all that I have commanded. The Apostle John in his first letter writes, That which we have heard, we also proclaim. This is the second mark of a healthy church, a confession for our mouths. If the church body is healthy, then it must state in the open what it believes. All that Jesus teaches, all that it has heard from God, it must speak with all humility, gentleness, patience, and love. What is the essence of the church's confession? In verses 4 to 6, Paul gives a series of seven statements. And notice the repeated theme here. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Because Paul puts these statements in a bullet point form, it's easy to just jump right through them. But these are really flyover views of the most important matters of Christianity. In fact, most of these statements are included in both the Apostles and Nicene creeds. Underneath each of them is profound meaning. So to start, why does Paul keep repeating one here? In just about anything in life, uh, we make judgments about where someone or something comes from. A product comes from here, it's a better product. 
product comes from there, it's inferior. Whether it's food, drink, clothes, computer products, we do it with just about anything, including people. Remember what Nathaniel said in John's Gospel? Can anything good come out of Galilee? Origins matter a great deal to us. And they did in Paul's day, too. In the Ephesian church, some came from a Jewish background and, had, and were familiar with the God of Israel, and others didn't. They grew up in a, in a, uh, they had a background where they worshiped many gods. And there wasn't just one Ephesian house church. There were several of them, and there would be more church plants along the way. So it would be easy to feel that there is a lack of unity in the church because of the different backgrounds and experiences in the way that these churches are emerging. And this is perhaps why Paul emphasizes the word one so many times in verses four and five. I'll put it in a more contemporary way. Whether you became a follower of Jesus because you heard a great preacher in a cathedral or someone shared the gospel with you at a Waffle House, it's the same message. More than that, it's the one Lord who is drawing all people into his body. Regardless of who shares or who receives the gospel, it's the one faith that spreads. But not everyone who knocks on your door or every TV portrayal of Jesus is talking about the one Lord we believe in. Notice the statements in the sequence. One Lord, one Spirit, and one God and Father of all. God reveals himself as three in one. This is who God says he is. We can know a lot of religious facts about God, that he created the world, that a man, Jesus, died on the cross, that he was raised from the dead. There are many religious groups that believe these things. But in order for our knowledge to go from knowing about God to knowing God, we must know him in the community of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Michael Reeves, an author, writes in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, it is only when we grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the trinity were something we could shave off, we would be shearing off precisely what is so delightful about God. So how do we enter into the delight of knowing God is triune? Well, we entrust ourselves to God. That is, through faith, we latch on. And the outward sign to the world that we have latched on to God by faith is baptism. When God puts his name upon his child, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, she then becomes a full member of the body of Christ and is part of the local church. Do you notice how Paul links all these ideas up? He says, just as you were called to the one hope. We hear all kinds of phrases about what to do with our identity. Find yourself, trust yourself, be yourself. But too often this leads to people getting lost in themselves. We are led to believe that somewhere buried underneath all our dreams and all our thoughts and all our fantasies and all our experiences is our true selves. But this pursuit is endless. It's exhausting. 
It leaves us feeling scattered, disconnected, unsure where we belong in the world, and ultimately without hope. But the good news of the gospel is that our true self is not buried somewhere in our hearts or in our minds. Our true self is found in relating to God through Jesus Christ, being a part of God's family as expressed in the local church, knowing that wherever God has placed us in his creation, he gives us good and meaningful work to do that counts not just for now, but for all eternity. And no matter your age, your abilities, your background, yes, even your failures and your pains and your struggles, none of them are outside God's ability to use for the good of his church. For that reason, Paul can add hope as a part of the series of things that the church speaks to the world. Well, after the church has heard its calling and it knows what it must confess to the world, the next mark has to do with what the church does, the work for the church's hands. So from verses 7 to 13, Paul discusses at length about how Jesus gives gifts to the church. He decides exactly what each person and what each local body needs to be his servants in the world. Every church and every single person in the church not only has heard a call or has a word to speak, but also has good work to do. And Paul says many things about this work, but I want to highlight two barriers he tackles um, that gets in the way of us doing this work well or in some cases makes the work drop off. In verses 8 through 11, he reminds the Ephesians about one of the most important, yet often overlooked works of Christ's ministry. He says, Jesus ascended on high, and he led a host of captives. Jesus' ascension is key to the gifting of the church body. Often what prevents the church from doing its work in ministry is fear, Fear on various levels, fear that the work will be futile, fear of rejection and persecution, fear that maybe this isn't exactly the right approach or the best method or the best way, or am I really qualified to do this? In the middle of his discussion, this is what Paul says, Jesus Christ is the all-ruling one who has defeated every spiritual power and opposition. He went down into the lowest and darkened regions and has been raised to the highest heavens. No one or no thing can oppose him. He is, he is the highest seated ruler of all. And what does he do with his power and authority? Not receive gifts but gives gifts to every single member of his body. He shows his power in his grace. It says in Mark, the Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. That's what he said on his way to the cross. But he is so gracious that he makes that, he makes that even in his ascension, He gives us graciously. He gives to each and every believer a gift of grace to be used. Now, in other places in the New Testament, Paul talks about spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and uh, 1 Corinthians 12, but in no place is there an exhaustive list given in the New Testament. 
So practically, this means that every good work that you do will ultimately result in a good end. Every act of love, every resistance of evil, every contribution to the needs of neighbors, every prayer for another person, every time you bless when you are cursed, when you try a new way of service and it doesn't work out exactly the way you hope to, it's a bit, it's a bit wobbly, even that can be used. Every single gift contributes in the body. Now notice how Christ distributes these gifts. He gives the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, these teaching gifts are meant to equip the saints so that both the ministers and saints do the work of ministry together. According to Paul here, every believer is a minister. I'm sure you've seen this church sign before. It's the one that has the pastor's name, pastor so-and-so, and then underneath it, it lists the ministers. And next to the name ministers is every member. That's what ca- that captures what Paul is going for here. Pastors and members together are the hands that do Christ's work in the world. There is no other, there is no other way for a church to know who it is and what it is to do without a teaching ministry centered on the gospel as it is taught in the scriptures. That happens primarily on Sunday mornings, but it also happens throughout the week as you study the scriptures in groups, in small groups, in Bible studies, and in other meetings. Most Christians, including pastors, will end up taking in way more Bible teaching than they would ever deliver. And there is a posture... There is another barrier all of us are tempted to take that gets in the way of us receiving God's word as an equipping message. And that's the critic. Here's what I mean. This comes from the philosopher and preacher Soren Kierkegaard. If we think of a church worship service as a dramatic play, then right now, as the preacher, I'm the one on stage. In the sense, I'm the actor. And behind the stage, hidden from plain sight, is the prompter, the one who helps the actor rehearse and remember his lines. In a sense, the prompter is God, or God's word. The preacher's lines are based on God's word. And the few of us gathered here, or the many of you who are watching at home, well, you're the audience. You may be engaging with this sermon like it's a performance or another YouTube video or Facebook post. You might be saying to yourself things like, well, that was a good point, or that was not so good, or why did he say it that way, or why does he talk like that, or that was funny, or that wasn't funny. And there the preacher stands, like an actor, trying to get his audience to respond in ways that is at least the cost of admission. But Kierkegaard says, we've got all these roles mixed up. This arrangement misses the point about the preaching and hearing of God's word altogether in whatever context we hear it. For starters, it isn't the preacher who is on stage when the word of God is preached. It's the congregation. 
throughout the scriptures, it's the hearers of God's word that are called up front. They are the ones who take in God's word, the commands, the promises, the doctrine, the parables, the gospel, and they have been tasked to live it out. As for the preacher, well, he's actually backstage. He is the prompter who week after week reminds the congregations, the congregation of the lines they are to live out. And both the preacher and the congregation perform the drama of Scripture in the presence of God, who alone is the sole judge of the performance. And it's very easy for both the preacher and the congregation to mess up their roles. The preacher will forget that he's a servant of God's word first and foremost and occupy his mind with the quality of his performance or neglect the parts of the scripture that are unpopular. And the congregation will fall back into critic and both the preacher and congregation fail to attend to the audience of one who wrote the script and who commissioned both the preacher and the congregation. Whatever teaching of God's word we hear, we are to take it in to help us to do the work of ministry and to grow in deeper unity with God and with one another. We are to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So after we hear the call and speak our confession and do the work of ministry, we get the final mark of a healthy body, and that is growth, growth for the whole body. If you notice in our passage, Paul describes growth in various ways, building up the body of Christ, uh, mature manhood, growing up in every way, making the body grow. Because the body is connected to Christ, who is the head, it will never stop growing until it is fully developed. Thankfully, the growth of the church body has more to do with Christ than each of us. But as Christ's grace gets more and more a hold of our lives, there will be observable marks of growth. First, we get, we get one from verse 13, that our knowledge of the Son of God will grow. When we are together, we find that there is no substitute like growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we take advantage of that opportunity when we are together. We direct our conversations not just to each other, but also to Jesus Christ while we are together. Second, we get clear on what matters most in verse 14. We, we aren't tossed about by every teaching that is out there. We realize that God's truth is often unpopular, sometimes hard to hear, but it's always good for us. And we need each other to keep each other honest about what God says. Third, we learn to speak the truth in love. The more we grow as a church body, the more we will be able to develop this difficult dynamic. Truth without love doesn't care about people. And love without truth doesn't care about facts. People we love are worth telling the facts. And the only facts worth telling are the ones that are couched in love. Well, so there we have it. Four marks of a healthy church. A calling for our ears, a confession for our mouths, work for our hands, and growth for the whole body. And I know that we are a part, 
But Christ is still maturing this church and his church. And by his grace, even during this pandemic, he will continue to do that in whatever setting and configuration you find yourselves in, even right now with the people you're in a room with. Take this opportunity to grow together in your love for Jesus Christ. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we are humbled that you have called us to be part of your body. And would you forgive us when we neglect each other or treat each other ill? Would you help us instead to press on into these marks? Would you help us to hear the calling? Would you help us to say the things that you tell us to say to each other and to this world without fear? Would you help us to do the work you've called us to do with our hands, not turning back, not dropping, not, not dropping our side of things, but instead we press on doing this work. And finally, Lord, help us to continue to grow. Lord, we, we don't see how you are growing the church uh, very well, but we know, Lord Jesus, because you are triumphant, that you are. And so, Lord, help us to continue as your body and in this local church, we pray. Amen.